Bismillah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah, Hamdan kathiran, tayyiban, mubarakan fi, kama yuhibbu rabbuna wa yarda, wa salatu wa salam al-atamman, al-akmalan, al-mutalazimani ala Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, Allahumma ilimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana, wazidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'liman wa fiqhan fi al-deen ya Rabbil alameen, amma ba'd. Alhamdulillah, this is the fourth session, isn't it? In module eight, covering the financial transactions. And we have this class tonight, and we have, inshallah, one more for module eight. And then we will be done with this module on financial transactions. After which we move into the next module, module nine, which looks at uh, the halal and the haram in a general sense uh, this is we'll talk about it when we get to it but that's the next module inshallah and in this module we're talking about financial matters and we said that the mu'amalat are not just uh, money matters specifically it can refer to any transaction that is a transaction between two or more people. And so far we've learned about the default regarding sales, that they are by default permissible, except the things that are explicitly haram in the Quran or in the Sunnah, or those things that are not mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah, but they are sufficiently similar to things prohibited in the Quran and the Sunnah. We talked about the conditions of a valid sale. We talked about general permissible and impermissible transactions. And last week we talked about riba. Uh, the different types of riba, the history of riba in the Quran and how it was revealed in stages. Uh, and we looked at some of the modern forms of riba. And there's a couple of questions that were put forward towards the end of last week's session we'll address before we go into the second aspect of these prohibited transactions, that of gharar. So uh, one of the lingering questions someone put out was regarding these loyalty programs. You know, the bonus miles you get uh, with airlines and with credit card companies, you get bonus points. You can basically earn points with purchases. The question is, is it allowed for you as a Muslim to participate in these things and partake of the bonus miles and things like that? And the answer is that as long as if you have a credit card and you're paying the fees on time to avoid interest, then you can use the reward programs. It's not an issue. Same thing for the airlines. The only case where it would be prohibited is if the bank is giving you these points as a form of interest on your deposit. And I don't know if that's even a thing, but let's say it is. If it was like that, it would be forbidden. Or if they give you points, they can only be redeemed by getting something haram. Like, oh, here's 200 points, but you can only redeem it with a bottle of wine. Obviously, that would be prohibited. But otherwise, earning points, airline miles, and so on, uh, as a part of being a regular customer, it's something that they're adding. Uh, as, it's basically a gift. You're not making money from money, right? So that would be, in essence, permissible, provided those other things are not in the transactions. And again, when it comes to, to the specifics, these are general answers to general questions. When it comes to specific cases, we have to look at each case and what are the terms and conditions and what's really going on. Uh, because each case may be different that would affect the ruling. So having gotten that out of the way, we go to the second thing. Remember we said most of these prohibited transactions are either the person selling something that is haram in essence, or they're selling something halal in essence, but is used for something haram, or it's riba in some form or fashion, or it is gharar. And gharar we left untranslated. Riba we say interest or usury, but gharar 
it's, it's not that we don't have a translation, but the translation would be an entire phrase. So we just stick with the word gharar and explain what it means in the different types. In the Arabic language, gharar literally means danger, khatar. And it's also defined as something that has a pleasing or likable appearance, but its reality is something that is disliked, or its reality is something else. And we find that meaning in the Qur'an when Allah Ta'ala describes the reality of the dunya. Allah Ta'ala says about this world that the life of the dunya is nothing but mata'ul ghurur. It is a deceptive enjoyment. It's a deluding, deceptive enjoyment. That's the linguistic meaning. But what concerns us most is the legal meaning of this word gharar. What does it mean? What are its forms? How do we avoid it? The legal meaning of gharar, according to the fuqaha, uh, it gets a little complicated between the schools because you're talking about unknown and uh, risks and things like that. But the basic meaning is exposing oneself or one's property unwittingly to the possibility of perishing. Now that definition doesn't really help us that much because it doesn't really define what a gharar transaction would look like. But that's the broad definition that you expose yourself and your money, your property unwilling, unwittingly to the possibility of it perishing, of you not actually getting anything out of it. So let's explain where this comes from what is its basis in the Qur'an and examples that existed in the past and in the present and contemporary forms today that we see all around us and many of us are involved in, sometimes willingly, other times unwillingly, but kind of forced into it. Now the word gharar, uh, we mentioned its linguistic meaning and the fact that that word is in the Qur'an but the legal meaning of gharar as this uncertain transaction or buying something that's unknown, that meaning is, or that prohibition is not mentioned explicitly in the Qur'an, but the, the meaning or its prohibition can be traced to the Qur'an because it's linked with maysir. What is mentioned in the Qur'an and explicitly forbidden is maysir, which is basically a game of arrows. What is maysir? It's a game of chance, right? You put money into a game of chance that you might win or you might lose. What are you paying for? You are paying for an unknown outcome. You're paying for the possibility of getting this prize that you may or may not get because it's depending on your, your skill, your skill or in this case, blind luck, depending on the, the kind of game. So Maysir is this game of arrows, and it's applied to any form of uh, gambling. And we have Qimar in different forms, some are worse than others, but that's the basic word. So Maysir came to be this uh, all-encompassing term that applied to all forms of gambling. Not just games of chance, but all forms of using money to buy something unknown that involves uncertainty and risk, the risk of buying something that's not what you wanted it to be or it not turning out to be what you thought it was or an unknown quantity. So it's, it's linked with the unknown and uncertainty. So the most explicit prohibition of gharar is not actually in the Qur'an, it's indirectly in the Qur'an, linked to Maysir. But the most explicit prohibition of gharar is in the hadith text. There are specific hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ forbade certain transactions, which are basically uh, the epitome of gharar. In the hadith of Abu Huraira, the Prophet ﷺ says, and this is in uh, Sahih Muslim, the, the Prophet ﷺ uh, he forbade gharar sales and pebble sales. What are pebble sales? 
Well, it was an old way of selling something. Let's say, um, we'll go into it. But Pebble Sales is basically saying, I'll sell you, you know, this plot of land. Maybe it's, a, let's say it's 50 acres, but I'll, I'll sell you as much land for, as far as you can throw this pebble. It may land at 20 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet. So you're agreeing to this uh, condition based on this chance of the stone going a certain distance. So that was an old form of selling land. That was forbidden. But that's a very explicit prohibition of gharar in general, and then that specific form of gharar sale. Now, to look at some definitions to narrow it down a little bit. The ulama say that gharar as a prohibited transaction is any sale that incorporates a risk that affects one or more of the parties to the contract and may result in the loss of property. That's pretty broad. Imam Al-Qarafi says, what is not known to exist in the future, that is gharar. Right? It's unknown what's going to come of it. There's a, this jahala involved, this uh, ignorance and unknowing about what the thing is, how much it is, what is its quality, does it even exist? You know, the, the unknown. Uh, Imam Shirazi Shafiri, he says that gharar uh, sales are, is the sale whose nature and consequences are hidden. It's very ambiguous. We'll see the examples. Uh, Ibn Qayyim says that which is undeliverable, whether it exists or not. So, for example, you see a bunch of birds flying in the sky. Are they deliverable? Can you deliver those birds? You can't sell them then. It's an undeliverable. You can't say, I'll sell you those birds flying in the sky because you can't deliver them. So he says that which is undeliverable, whether it exists or not. So basically, gharar is this broad ignorance of the nature or the type or the description of an object of sale. It often involves deception and it's often tied with uncertainty, jeopardy, and risk. So, I, I mean, the idea of gharar is pretty clear, but the examples are what is lacking. Let's look at some examples. Uh, a lot of these examples are mentioned in the books of fiqh, and they're not really relevant to us because we don't see them in our day-to-day -day lives. But they give us a good example of what they used to look like and give us a better understanding of the modern forms that are all around us. So... Let's look at the way this plays out in Islamic law. And I want to put forward a question before I explain this. Um, how many of you have uh, bought a house? Just raise your hand. I bought a house. Did you get a home inspection? Were you able to inspect every square inch of the house? You weren't able to inspect the foundation. Did you dig up the foundation and go underground to inspect it? So isn't that buying something that's unknown to some extent? It is. Some forms are unavoidable. So we're not talking about the unavoidable. We're talking about the avoidable. Or let's say you want to buy a bunch of carrots that are still in the ground. Can you see the carrots? You can only see the stems growing out. You can't see the actual carrots. So maybe you pull up one or two carrots, but do you have to pull up every single carrot in the carrot patch before you agree to buy whatever's in that plot? No, because what if you don't like them? At least the guy, if he lost two or three carrots, no big deal, but if you pull them all out, where is he going to put them now? If you say, I don't want to buy them anymore. So there is a certain degree of... Uh, Gharar, mild gharar in some transactions. So Imam al-Nawi talks about uh, some of these pardonable minor forms and then the major forms. He says that the prohibition of gharar sales is a fundamental part of Islamic law under the topic of which many issues may be included. But two items are excluded from gharar sales. Items that are included as part of a sale that may not be sold separately. The foundation of a house or milk 
in the udder belonging to an animal, right? So that's a part of it. You can't inspect the quality of the milk inside the udder. So there's some uncertainty there, but you're buying the whole thing. You're buying the whole cow, or you're buying the whole house. Number two, he mentions items that are customarily tolerated, either due to its insignificance or the difficulty of identifying, such as the fees for using a bathroom where the amount of water used in the bath may vary, drinking from private waters, and the amount of cotton used in the lining of a garment. These are common examples in his time. Is, so you have, for example, a public bath, and you're allowed to go into that bath for a set fee and use a certain amount of water. Are you defining exactly how much water you're allowed to use? They're not defining it. It's customary. You're going to use this much. Maybe you use more. Maybe you use less. This is pardonable because of its insignificance and its difficulty in identifying. You can't really measure how much water is used because some people use more and some people use less. But you're paying a flat rate for using the water in that public bath or drinking from private waters. A person has uh, a private area where there's water coming from a spring. And let's say you pay to use that water. You're paying a flat rate to use the water, which is customary. You're not specifying how much exactly. So that's, there's some uncertainty there, but it's pardonable. But what we're looking at is the haram gharar, which is avoidable. That's what we want to focus on. And so... Let's look at the old examples and the new examples. The old examples are mentioned in the books of fiqh. They say things like selling pearls in shales, right? The person's in the ship and they're going to cast their net to go uh, oyster fishing, whatever they call that. And they sell you uh, the, whatever pearls come out of that catch. Have they even discovered the pearls yet? They have no idea. Maybe there's no pearls at all. Maybe every single one is a pearl. And, but either way, you are paying for something that is unknown, that is a risk, that may or may not happen. That would be prohibited. Likewise, selling unborn animals in the womb. Selling fish in the water prior to catching them. It's not deliverable. right? Once it's caught... It now becomes deliverable and it's specified in its quantity and its type. Now you can sell it, but not while it's still just floating or swimming around in the water. Birds in the air prior to hunting them. Those are undeliverable. But if you deliver them by hunting them and taking them out, okay, well now you can sell it because they're yours. You have taken possession. The next one, it's a little wordy, but this is what they say. Selling someone else's property, quote-unquote, someone else's property, on the understanding that he will buy it and then deliver it. So let, let's give a, a more modern example. Let's say a person is going to buy something they see at a flea market. They see something that's for $20, and before they even have the transaction, they're trying to make a sale by marking up the price going online. They put it on eBay, selling it for 80. Do they even own it yet? They don't even own it yet. So if that transaction between the person and them on eBay, it's a problematic transaction because they don't own it yet. The possibility of the deal falling through or not working, it's definitely there. So if a person knows that the person is selling what isn't even theirs, that would be a prohibited transaction because they don't have possession. It's not a guaranteed deliverable, right? And uh, someone had asked about this drop selling, and I don't know about how drop selling works in the, the minutia and the small details, but it appears that it involves this, where you're selling things, uh, you're representing third parties selling things before they're even delivered to you. But should look into the details there. Uh, other examples are touch sales. Uh, which is basically 
they'll say, whichever dress you touch is yours. And you're going to buy it. So, you touch that one. Okay, you're making the offer and I accept the offer for this price. What if you accidentally touched it? Right? It, it, it's ambiguous here. You don't know the quality. You didn't necessarily agree to the sale. Right? Uh, discarded item sales, which is very specific. It doesn't mean selling used items. It means I'll sell you this item if or when I discard it for such and such. So let's say we have this old phone, and I'll say to you, uh, I'll sell this to you for $100 uh, if I get rid of it in the future. It, is it possible that something may happen to it between now and that undetermined future? Absolutely. It could break. It could get stolen. It could be lost. So what are exactly are you paying for? You're paying for something to own in the future when things might happen, when things might change. It's, it's, it, there's this risk involved. You don't know what's going on. And lastly, the pebble sale, Bayr al-Hasad. I'll sell you this land to the farthest point to which you throw a pebble. Or throw this pebble, then whatever garment it falls on is yours. So that's mixing the dress sale and the, the touch sale and the pebble sale in a way. So these are old examples mentioned in the books of fiqh. And very few of these are relevant for us in our day-to-day -day life because we don't really buy and sell like this. But these are the examples they mention to give very concrete examples of paying for something that is either unknown or undeliverable or unclear in its type, its description, its quantity, and so on. Now, when we look at gharar, we mentioned the example of the, the, the foundation of a house or a plot of carrots, right? Uh, things that where it's a little pardonable, it's a little uh, mild and minor. The ulama say that gharar and ignorance about what you're buying is two types. There's actually three, but the two types are the main ones. The first they say is the substantial and major gharar that's haram by agreement. So selling birds in the sky, selling things that are undeliverable, uh, selling something that is unknown in its quality, quantity, right? The person saying, I'll paint your house for an undetermined price. Don't worry, I'll give you a good quote once I'm finished. So you're transacting based on an unknown value. Right, that's, this is all problematic. That is substantial, and that is haram, bittifaq, by agreement of the ulama. The other kind of gharar is minor. So the foundation of a house can't really be inspected. You can't really burrow underneath and inspect the foundation of a house. If you're buying a used car, what are you expected to do? Realistically, I mean, if you know about cars, you check it out. You look up, you open the hood, you go inside, you drive it around. Maybe you take it to a mechanic friend who knows cars really well, and they inspect it and they look for any things that might be problematic later down the road. No pun intended. Uh, are you realistically able to take apart the engine and look through the pistons and do all the minor inspections? It's not reasonable. So that jahala, that ignorance about what's going on in the minutia of the car is pardoned because it's difficult. So minor gharar like that is permissible. Or, uh, as it mentions here, potatoes in a specific plot of land. It's enough to inspect a few of them to get a general sense of the rest of them, right? So that's pardonable. Or if you're buying uh, a bushel of green beans, you're not, the green beans are inside. You have to crack it open and see. You can inspect one or two, and on the basis of those one or two, you say, okay, I'll take a whole bushel. And you haven't inspected every single one of them. Is it possible that you open the best two green beans and the rest of them are a little bad? It's possible, but you're making an educated guess because it's unreasonable to tell the shopkeeper, I won't buy these green beans until I open every single one of them. Right? So this is pardonable. Uh, so these are minor forms. In food items, 
And these are usually in areas where the buyer has the option of inspection. You can inspect the green beans, you can inspect the potatoes, you can inspect the house, you can inspect the car. When you have that option of inspection, the part that is difficult to or impossible to truly inspect, or it's unreasonable to inspect at all, that would be pardonable. That's not what we're talking about here when we talk about the prohibited gharar. Now, all of these examples that I mentioned here, I mean, no one's going around selling birds that are flying in the sky. I've never in my life encountered someone saying, I'll sell you all the goldfish in that park. I've never encountered this. The gharar that I've encountered uh, outside of the major form in, in the world today is when people try to sell services without specifying the price until after they've done the service. Right, that's a major problem. And prices should be clear, terms should be clear. If there's more work needed, what, you know, how are these things structured? There should be clarity. Now, if you were asked, what is the greatest, most prevalent form of gharar in the East and the West and the North and the South all across the world today that impacts every single one of us, what would it be? Insurance. Insurance is the greatest gharar scheme ever concocted. But ever, almost every single one of us is involved in it at various levels. So that's something we have to talk about. So fardain knowledge is knowing what is gharar and some common examples. And fardain knowledge includes knowing the modern forms of gharar that impact us in our daily life. So let's look at insurance, the basis of insurance, the different forms of insurance, and the rulings surrounding them. Because I'm not telling you that after tonight you have to go and get rid of all of your insurance. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that there are different forms. Some we have an argument for some and others we have no argument for. All right? So... Modern gharar, insurance. Insurance, ta'meen, is haram in the sharia. And it is haram because it has either an element of interest or chance, qimar, both of which are explicitly forbidden in the Qur'an and in the sunnah. And it, they have other, other things as well, but these are the two main things. The main thing is you are paying for something that doesn't even exist, right? Think of any form of insurance. What exactly are you paying for? You're paying for nothing. You're paying for some, something that may or may not happen in the future. And you hope that nothing bad happens in the future to your car or to your health or to anything. But you are paying for an unknown, something that is indeterminate, that is undeliverable, right? And this is why insurance is by default haram, because you're paying for the unknown. So what this means is premiums are paid, the return is uncertain, one may lose the premiums paid or receive in return more than what's paid. You see how that works? You could, you could put in 10,000, but then something happens, you get more than 10,000. Right? That's possible. But usually you pay the premium, you're never seeing that money again. Year after year, you're just paying into it. You're not getting anything out of it. You're not actually buying anything. So insurance has actually existed for a very long time. The original or the oldest forms of insurance that we know in history were maritime insurance for uh, sailors who will go out want to insure their catch, ensure their voyages. And this is very old. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are certain halal forms of cooperative uh, agreements where people pull their money together to help each other out. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the modern insurance that we all know about, you know, paying into it. Now, many years ago, the Majma' Fiqhi, the Islamic Fiqh Academy in Jeddah, which has been operating for many, many years, 
and it consists of top ulama and experts and consultants across the world. They convened uh, a meeting uh, many, many years ago specifically on the issue of insurance and its various facets. In this meeting that was attended by 150 top ulama across 45 Islamic countries, they unanimously declared that in all types of insurance is haram. It wasn't even a split decision. It was unanimous because there's nothing that's more gharar than paying for the unknown that may or may not happen. So it was declared haram by Majma' al-Fiqhi. So that is the default. So every form of insurance you can think of. That includes life insurance, car insurance, health insurance, traveler's insurance, uh, employer, employ, employer insurance, whatever it is. The default, the asal, is that it is prohibited because it is gharar. However, there are certain caveats. There are certain uh, things we have to consider. One of them is that insurance although it is, de- it is pro- forbidden by default, it would be permissible if there is a legal requirement in the land, the country a person lives, or if there is a mitigating circumstance. Examples scholars give uh, are paying for a car insurance in a place where you can't really survive properly without a car, or paying, or, or even better, paying health insurance in a place like North America or America where not having it if you were to get uh, significantly injured or sick it could totally ruin you financially right so the ulama would say that if it's going to lead you to bankruptcy and financial ruin you can get health insurance in those countries and in those circumstances but let's say you live in a place where there's socialized health care and all of your needs will be taken care of uh, by the social insurance that is just in the country through taxes. So like Canada, for instance, uh, would you be getting health insurance there? You wouldn't because the default is that it's haram. You would only get it if you have to because of the pressing needs, leading you to financial ruin if you were to get sick. Uh, and this is mentioned by Shaykh Wahba Zuhaili, rahimahullah, uh, who did a lot of research on the issue of insurance. Now, let's look at uh, the car insurance issue and then life insurance a little bit here. I mean, the health insurance. Um, If you don't get car insurance, will you survive? You're not going to survive if you don't have car insurance? If you don't have a car, will you survive? You'll survive. Um, If you're led into financial ruin, it's an open-ended question. We don't know, right, you know, what that could mean. So the idea here is the, the fuqaha are operating using certain legal maxims. And the chief maxim here, this qa'ida fiqhiyya, is that al-darurat The necessities would make permissible those things uh, that are normally forbidden. The forbidden becomes permissible due to duress, darura. The issue is that darura is a legal necessity, which is usually defined as the threat of losing life or limb. Are you going to lose life or limb if you don't have a car? No. So how can we say that getting car insurance in America is permissible because it is a kind of darura? in this society or getting health insurance would be permissible because it's a darura, a necessity in this society and the necessities would permit what is ordinarily forbidden how can we say that when not having a car will not result in a loss of life or limb well the answer is that the ulama take this maxim and they they stretch it a little bit and they apply it with another maxim, which is that the uh, al-haja, 
uh, the, this, uh, the need that a person has can be taken or treated in the position of a darura. Al-haja tanzil manzilat al-darura, the specific need that a person has in society can take the place of a necessity because life becomes very, very difficult for people if they don't have a car, especially in a place where public transportation is not that great and they have to get to their work and get, take care of other needs. So although it's not a, a threat of losing life or limb, it becomes a dire need and the dire needs in those circumstances are treated as if they are daruriyat, as if they are necessities. Uh, the darurat the become, uh, or the hajiyat become like darurat. The needs become like necessities. If you didn't have insurance and you couldn't drive a car, of course it's not uh, an immediate threat, but it's a significant difficulty that is significant enough that the ulama rule, one would be able to get car insurance in these societies. So you're not getting the insurance because you really want to, it's because you have to. You get the health insurance not because you want to, but realistically, Allah forbid someone has a catastrophic accident or a really debilitating illness that hospitalizes them. Without health insurance, that could financially ruin them. And so in these societies, the ulama generally give the fatwa that one can get health insurance and get car insurance. Uh, and those are the two main ones to the point where most people don't even think about them. We, we, we've heard this a lot. But one question does come up. If car insurance is allowed for us because it's a kind of necessity in the society, if it's a necessity, does that mean we should only do the absolute bare minimum liability? Yes, in general. Or there's some caveats here too. There's some caveats. Generally, yes. The default is yes, you only go for the bare minimum because you want to pay as little as possible into this transaction which is gharar in essence. You don't want to be involved in this transaction, but you're kind of forced to because of the nature of the world we live in, the time and place you're in. So if you're forced, you do it at the bare minimum. So if you have three insurance packages, you know, bronze, silver, and gold, you go for the bronze, right? whatever that is. You don't go for the gold, the top one. However, a question comes up. And this has been the subject of certain uh, istifta, certain uh, fatwas, uh, questions posed seeking fatwa. A person says, okay, I understand that I should only get the bare minimum car insurance. Um, the problem is this. Uh, if I get a car with that kind of insurance and it's a used car, the, the car could break down, the car could be costly to repair, it becomes significant and I end up paying more out of pocket to fix this car in the long run. Uh, whereas if I were to get uh, a car, say lease a car or, or get a car that requires a higher level of insurance, I'm paying more insurance, but there's less of a chance of there being uh, damage to that car because it's newer, it's better, it's in better condition. So the ulama, uh, have given fatwa, some of the ulama have given fatwa that you can pay a higher insurance premium if you are reasonably certain that by doing so you're going to avoid the risk of wasting money and time on costly repairs for a cheaper vehicle. So that they say would be permissible based on the need. And everyone has to consider their own situation, right? People who need a reliable transportation and they have the choice of getting this car or that car, and this one requires a higher level of insurance, but with that comes reliability and less out-of-pocket cost in the long run, they would be allowed, based on the principle that al-haja tanzil manzilat al-darura, that the need can take the place or, uh, of a necessity permitting certain things. So that, that's a fatwa a person can take. They can, ex they can take that if they want. 
Um, the question is whether we treat that as barura or just convenience. It goes back to the person in their own circumstance. Uh, I think you have to be wary of just uh, taking open-ended fatwas for very specific conditions. It's always good to get a personalized fatwa for your particular condition so that it is as accurate as possible. So this is why a lot of those fatwa websites, a lot of the questions are very general and good if they're coming from reliable sources. But some of the fatwas that are online, even if they're good, they're good for a specific person in the specific case described in the istifta itself. But people read the answer when their circumstances are different from the questioner, the original questioner. So this is why it's always better to go to a scholar, a real life scholar, and say, here are my particular circumstances. What is the fatwa? What is the legal ruling applying to me in this nazila, in this issue? Um, another question is property insurance. Uh, this is very similar. Uh, some of the ulama, they say that it is permissible uh, as a kind of uh, indemnity against personal injury claims that can occur if someone is injured on one's property. And some places, uh, particularly people who uh, don't have the ability to buy homes, they can only rent many places, will only rent to a person if they get renter's insurance. It's a condition of even getting the apartment. So in this case, again, al-haja tanzil manzilat al-darura, the dire need becomes, as it were, a kind of necessity, allowing what would ordinarily be gharar and haram. So you're not willingly getting into it, you're kind of forced into it, even if it's not a question of losing life or limb. Travel insurance, that's another one. Uh, the ulama, they say that the default for travel insurance is the same as the other forms of insurance. Haram, because you're paying for something unknown that may or may not happen. So the default is that it is haram unless, they say, a person is traveling to a place where there is a very strong possibility of being in a situation of extreme hardship. And they say a person going to a war-torn country or a place where there's a, an environmental disaster and there's ongoing issues and there's a very high chance of them getting sick, getting injured, uh, something really uh, bad happening to them. In that case, they would be allowed to if the medical costs are so high that it, it becomes similar to here where if you don't have it, it's financially devastating. So that's again a case-by-case -case basis. Would you take traveler's insurance when you go to uh, vacation in the Maldives? No, not if you can help it. Would you take traveler's insurance if you are volunteering to be an aid worker in a war-torn area, a high-conflict area, and they don't have good medical facilities? If you decided to take this ruling, it would apply to those places. And, and in some country, well, if you want to go for Hajj and Umrah, right, guess what? You have to get traveler's insurance. That's a part of getting your visa, and you have to show proof of that when you go through the airport. It's, it's 20 or $30, but it's still insurance. It's imposed on you. You know, things imposed on you like this, it is what it is. It is what it is. And, you know, it's an interesting question applied to Umrah. Uh, the ruknia of Hajj remains, you know. Would you say that, oh, you don't get to make Hajj, you don't have to make Hajj anymore because they're imposing it? No. For Umrah, it's a different question, and I don't know the answer to that. But it is imposed. Uh, other forms of insurance would be employee insurance. Uh, if the employer arranges a contract for the employee where they're putting money into some form of insurance, right, there's different types, then there's no sin or blame on the employee. He can benefit from that policy. He's not making the transaction. 
right? So that's the general fatwa. If the company is doing it, yeah, not if you're doing it. If you're doing it, it this is the one issue. Because with life insurance, it's, uh, it pays out after, after you die. So it's basically the risk of dying. And once, you, once you've died, guess what? You're, you're dead. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the, the ulama who have more leeway with the other forms have less leeway with life insurance. Because you can't really argue that it's a necessity. Those who argue in favor of it would say that it's not a necessity for you, because you're dead, but it may be a necessity or a haja, a need, that takes the place of a necessity in a certain context for your family members. If an alim gives a fatwa allowing it with those caveats and a person trusts them, who am I to say that they're wrong you know they did their due diligence they take the mufti's position if they want to uh, otherwise the default is that it's haram that's the important thing to understand the default is that these things are haram because they're all forms of gharar paying for the unknown if this or that type is allowed it is allowed either because it's like a darura a necessity or a, ha- a need that takes the place of a necessity, or there's, a, there's some fatwa that has uh, looked at the issue a little differently and given that person a ruling. But the default remains. Gharar transactions are haram. I asked the question because you mentioned if an employer does it for an employee. Yeah. So does that apply to all kinds of insurance that the employer offers to an employee? Because an employee is not paying into it. Yeah, you're not paying into it. So Yeah, my understanding is it would all be permissible. Okay. Yeah, but if, if there is something fishy or questionable in any particular uh, thing they're offering, then just look into it individually. Yeah. Uh, another question. How many of you have uh, AAA membership? Mm, a lot of you. A lot of you. Um, is, this, is this a kind of insurance? Or is it not? Mm. Is it? But is it though? So this is now, okay, you know that gharar is haram. The fiqh is that gharar is haram. Now you look at AAA, the question is now, what is AAA? What is the service? And is it gharar? So there's fiqh and there's the fact. What is AAA? These are called cover plan contracts. So road recovery services, there's, they have them in different countries. So for AAA and others, you have a fixed premium paid every single year. And when you become a member, you're paying for the service that the company is offering you. And that service is their readiness to be there to help you at any given time. Right? So you are paying for that khidma to be on call. Right, The security guard that you hire to guard your castle, you're paying them to be on call to help you should you be attacked by a bunch of robbers. You know, you're paying for their presence to do the rounds, of course, but what you're really paying for is that service should the need arise for them to defend you and protect you. In a somewhat similar way, AAA, you're paying for the service of them being on call to help you fix a flat tire, to give you a booze, whatever it may be. And that's why, uh, this is noted by the fuqaha who looked into the issue, that's why the company is not paying you for damages to the car. They're not paying you for that. And if you ran out of gas and they came and filled you up, filled up, gave you some gas, guess what? You're, you're paying for that gas. You're paying for that gas. And if you didn't use the service during the course of a year, the payment still remains because you're paying for the service of them being there for you at any given time. Are you paying for something unknown? It, I mean, it seems that way, doesn't it? Because you may or may not have a flat tire. You may or may not run out of gas. You may or may not need a boost, a uh, jump start. 
But really what you're paying for is the service of them being on call should those things happen, right? So it's, it's subtle, but it's not insurance. But you can make the same argument with the insurance company. But you may get more money than you even put into so it. if you put a condition, you're not going to get more than what you have paid on it. Well, when you work that out, <laughs> bring it to a mufti and get their fatwa, I don't know. Uh, like if you pay for you pay for a service like AAA, the issue is it's not it's not gharar because uh, it's very clearly spelled out what you're paying for. Whereas insurance, okay, how many times has a person bought uh, paid for insurance premiums for home insurance? The house gets damaged and they're fighting with the insurance company to get money. Whereas for AAA, it's like okay, you need a you need a you need a spare tire, you need to fix the tire, you need to get uh, jumper cables, you know, they're there for the service, whatever it may be. Tow your car, you're, they're just on call for you, that's what you're paying for. And you may or may not use that service, but the service is there that you're paying for. Whereas insurance, they may say, well, no, we're not going to fix this because it's not covered, or we, don't th we think it's too much, or we don't believe you, there's, there's all these other things going into it, it's an unknown, there's a jahala in that transaction that you don't have in AAA. So, and this is what some of the fuqaha have said about these kinds of con cover plans. At the end of the day, you want to investigate each of these. And if you're ever unclear about the terms, then seek the advice of a scholar who, can, who knows the fiqh and also knows how these things work and can read through them and ex explain them. Um, lastly, is social insurance. We don't have that here, so it's not that relevant to us, but in some countries, there is social insurance. Go to our neighbors up north. Our neighbors up north in Canada pay extremely high taxes for uh, services that are somewhat poor than the services here uh, in terms of medical care, and that's a fact, right? But there's social, the social insurance is there. And the social insurance also gives child tax credits to mothers and all this stuff. So social insurance paid by governments or retirement and insurance funds to public servants are all valid. And these monies are similar to the Baytul Mal from taxes collected by the government from wages. Now, what is the government doing with all that money? God knows. Are those transactions permissible, all of them? Very unlikely. But because all of the money is mixed up, whatever you are receiving in the form of social insurance would be similar to the money a person gets from the Baytul Mal, the public treasury. So the general fatwa is that if someone was working for, let's say they work for, uh, you know, some civil, uh, some government job, and they get some uh, retirement funds from the government work, they get a pension, or they get some kind of insurance thing coming from that government that, they fund, that funds them. It's similar to in your employer, right? You can take it. Uh, you're not involved in those transactions. You're just benefiting from it. Only in this case, it's kind of like a Baytul Mad because it's the government doing it. Uh, this is not really relevant for us, but what is relevant is are the other forms of insurance. So, my advice would be to uh, look carefully at what insurance you do have. If it's a necessity or that of a dire need, then keep it. If you find that it's not serving that kind of need, reassess you know, what you're involved in. Uh, try to avoid what you can avoid, which you can reasonably avoid without too much detriment to your life. And don't go for every kind of insurance. You know the you know, insure this, insure that, you know, all these offers you get to insure stuff, there's no dire need for any of that. So the default answer for any question about insuring this package, insuring this, the default answer should be no. There could be cases where it's a dire need and you need to say yes. So although we have the blanket prohibition, we have these circumstances where uh, necessities sometimes uh, permit what is ordinarily forbidden and 
the needs, dire needs, can sometimes take the place or take the level of being uh, like necessities. And this is what the ulama mentioned, you know, you can't escape car insurance, you can't escape the need for some form of health insurance uh, in this society. Uh, the others, try to avoid if you can. And uh, you know, that's really it. So what remains in the next and final class is haram earnings from selling what is haram or selling what is uh, halal in essence but for a haram purpose. Uh, and that won't be too much. So we'll probably review everything and include that and take a glimpse at what we're going to be covering between now and right before Ramadan, uh, just to give a sneak preview of what we're going to cover. Maybe also recap and take a look at what we've covered from the beginning of the program. Just see where, how far we've gone along uh, next week, inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Wa iyaakum. Yeah, so this, you know, it's like, I mean, the Shafri's, it's a little, they're stricter on this, right? But the others would say that that would be the pardonable type because uh, like public water consumption that you pay for or a public bathroom, public bath, uh, or the, the buffet, you know, there's a, a general amount most people eat and that's a pardonable kind of, uh, unknowability yeah but the hotel you know how many days you're staying you don't know what the color of the sheets will be or how nice the view will be but these are not really the issue yeah. the warranties are they under the same ruling of insurance or they are the kind of AAA yeah that's a little more complicated they're not exactly insurance but there's some conditions here uh, I'm not qualified to answer I would just defer to the fatawa of the ulama who have investigated it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question, though. It's an online question. Yeah, maybe we can address it next week. I'll, I'll look into it, but that's, that's beyond my pay grade. Uh, I mean, I have heard, I've heard different conditions for that being valid, some forms that would be invalid, some that would be valid, but I don't, none, none of it, uh, nothing comes to mind right now. Mm-hmm. What happens if you're buying an object in the hopes that it grows in value later on, but instead loses value, or you're buying a portion of the business in the hopes that it grows, but instead fails? That's normal uncertainty. Okay. Yeah, but the issue is, is that thing deliverable? Yeah, I mean, you have ownership, right? It's anything that you buy that you're going to invest in may or may not make a profit for you, right? So there's, but that's not gambling, is it? It's just the natural risk that comes with business. Yeah. There's a question about malpractice for doctors, malpractice insurance. Mm. Uh, sometimes they have to buy their own, right? Yeah. And sometimes the hospital pays for it. Mm. So they're asking, is it permissible? Yeah, I, I don't. I never. I never heard anything specific about it. I don't know. It's required. Practice. It's required. Okay, so. To even be practicing medicine, you just have to have it. Yeah. Okay. It states if it's not required, I mean, sometimes if you get sued, for example, that could... It could be similar to health insurance in that getting sued would financially ruin you. Yeah. So it seems like, so the brother's asking about medical malpractice insurance. So if you're required to, then the question's answered. And if you're in a state where it's not required, then you still may consider it like health insurance because of the possibility of being sued and being financially ruined. It's very similar. 
والله المستعان يو نو سيدنا عمر ابن عبد العزيز هي هاز ذس فيموس سينج هي سيز ذات ذا نيو ايشوز ايمرج ان اور لايف كومبليكيتد ايشوز ايمرج ان بروبورشن تو اور سينز سو ذا مور سينز بيبل ار دوينج ان ذا سوسايتي ذا مور نيو ايشوز ريكواير فتوى ذات جيت كونفيوزينج سو ذاتس واي وي هاف سو ماني وات اباوت ذس وات اباوت ذات لايك نو ونز اسكينج اباوت ميديكال مال انشورنس Uh, medical malpractice insurance uh, 500 years ago. They are now because we live in such a society, litigious society, people who sue for the smallest of things and want to get money out of you. We live in a society where people will intentionally slip next to a stack of uh, soda bottles or something just to sue the grocery store to get money. You know, so that's the world we live in. Yes. Yeah, I think this this is not gharar. The issue here is this, this is a kind of interest where, because the issue of interest is uh, value and time, right? So, I mean, the particulars, we'd have to look at what are the particular conditions, but it's, it's likely a kind of interest where there's the, the price is more or less based on what is put forward or what is delayed, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like similar to Ruben Jahiriya. Yeah. We had the car example last time. Yeah. The same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a there's a, a general rule in life I think most people would be wise to stick to which is to buy things that you can own completely as much as possible. Obviously big things like cars and houses not can't really do that. It's not so easy. But for other things, the best thing is to only pay for what you can afford right then and there, you know? Getting involved with credit cards, paying for things that you can't actually afford, it just sets you up for these things where you're dragged into riba un- unwittingly. So if it's pay, pay this now or pay that, you know, six months, just if you can get it now, get it now, you know? It avoids so much of this Uh, this riba system that is saturating so many transactions around us. Uh, yeah, Allah al Mustaan. Isn't like a raffle, is that considered like the basic? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're paying for something that may or may not happen. It's like a lottery ticket. Yeah, it's like a lottery ticket. Yeah. If you're not paying, you're not paying. Yeah, it's not a transaction, then you're just, you know, it's like a game. But is it a game of chance? Yeah, in some way, but you're not putting money into it, right? Like, let's, let's, buy a bunch of, let's go buy a bunch of lottery tickets and then donate the winnings for charity. <laughs> yes. No, the person, the example they mentioned, uh, a person who goes uh, uh, oyster diving, pearl diving, they... They haven't gone diving yet. They're, they're on the ship and they say to you, hey, uh, I'll sell you all the pearls I catch in this next bunch for um, $500. They haven't dived into the water yet. They haven't gathered the oysters. They haven't put them back on, on the boat. If they do that, there may be zero oyster, uh, pearls. There may be five pearls. So. You're paying for something that hasn't even happened yet. 
that may or may not even be present after they've uh, acquired those oysters. So you're paying for the unknown, right? You're not saying, I'll give you X amount of dollars for X amount of pounds of oysters that I'm going to eat, right? Because they can go get the oysters and sell them by weight, right? That's known volume, you know, known quantity, and that's not an issue. The issue is that oyster may or may not have a pearl. So how can you pay for a pearl that hasn't been discovered yet? It's like saying, I have gold in my backyard. I just have to dig for it. And I'll sell you, I'll sell you the gold in my backyard for X amount of dollars. And you give me the money. I haven't even gotten my shovel yet. Let's say tomorrow I get my shovel and I start digging. Maybe I have this much gold. Maybe I have a huge block of gold. But you've paid for something that's unknown. Uh, number one, it hasn't been delivered. It's unknown if it's even there. It, and if it's there, you don't know what the quantity is. So there's so many unknowns that it's a risk, it's a jeopardy. You're paying for what's essentially unknown. That's the difference. Does that make sense? Okay, so if I buy the oysters with the intention of hoping there are pearls in them, like I buy a certain amount, I know that I buy a kilo, and I hope there are pearls in that. Is that like an investment like, or a business thing? Or yeah, but your transaction between... Uh, between you and that person, you're just buying oysters. Okay. He's not telling you, I'm selling you the pearls. You know, I'm selling you these oysters. He's okay, I have some, I'll have oysters for dinner. Maybe I'll get a pearl. Oh. That's a secondary thing, right? But the transaction is proposal to buy X amount of oysters for this price, and they accept that offer, and they deliver the goods to you, they're not selling a promise of something that may or may not be there. They're not, selling, they're not selling a chance of you finding something that may or may not be there. They're selling you the object as is that you see and in a clear measure, a clear weight. So if you buy the oysters and you get pearls, well, it's yours. But you, the transaction wasn't for the pearls. Maybe secret that you're hoping you get one, but for, as far as he's concerned, he's selling you oysters. He's not promising you, you know, the, oy the pearls in the oysters because he can't deliver on that, right? Unless he was to, to go die for them and just sell you the pearls, in which case he's a pearl dealer, not an oyster dealer. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Next, next week, we have the final class for Module 8.